the HD Movie Podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 68 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice-Roberts. And today we have another Summer of Sharks movie, but we also have a guest. I'm delighted to say that Kate Orton is going to join us again after she did last year. And this time we're talking a very different shark movie. What are we going to be doing, Hayley? We're going to be doing a Roger Corman B-movie from 1958. It's the uh, lesser-known She-Gods of Shark Reef. Is it a shark film? Let's find out. On this week's Summer of Sharks episode, we have a movie from the 1950s and we also have a returning guest. Coming back for a second helping of Summer of Sharks after joining us last summer is the one and only Kate Orton. Hello, Kate. Hi, Darren. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Great to be here. Thank you for coming on. So, 1958's Roger Corman movie, She Gods of Shark Reef, great exploitation title. Do we have a synopsis, Haley? I'm thinking that Nick Reganis probably doesn't have one. So this movie is even too obscure for Nick Reganis, unfortunately. So I'm just going on to the IMDb synopsis and I'm going to read one from Gabe Taverney because this is the more detailed uh, synopsis I could find. Chris Johnson helps his brother Jim, who is a fugitive on a murder charge, to escape from the law on his boat. They are shipwrecked on a reef near a supposed uninhabited island that are pulled from the shark-filled waters by Maya, one of the group's strong, sarong-clad nubile beauties living there. Their leader, Queen Pua, tells them that they will have to wait for a company supply boat to take them away. After Chris saves Maya from being sacrificed to the shark gods by Queen Pua, and Jim steals the queen's cachet of pearls, the men try to make the good escape with the stolen canoe. I mean, that kind of sums up the entire movie in a synopsis. I mean, all of that stuff happens. It also probably makes the movie sound slightly more exciting than it ends up being because it's of its era, this movie. It's kind of a cheesecake struck beefcake movie. So you have lots and lots of people in beachwear running around, but it's more skewed towards the guys this time, I think. Am I right, Kate? So, synopsis-wise, it's men go to island, women are present, one wants to steal women, one wants to steal jewels, end. (laughs) It's a 63-minute runtime, and it was conceived as a a literal B-movie that was shot one day after filming wrapped on, I forget the name of it, I bet Hayley's got it tucked in her back pocket. What was the other film they were shooting? 
there's actually two titles for it. It's Thunder Over Hawaii or Naked Paradise. Naked Paradise, I think, is the title that Roger Corman uses for it. And I, I wasn't aware of this. A, a common thing to do was where you have a location, you've got a cast and crew ready to go, you write a second film and you take that along and you film that immediately after your first film wraps. So that's what they did with Shark Reef. Um, and I think it was Atlantic Pictures insisted on adding the she-gods element. God's a bit thin on the ground in this film, thin in the air, thin in the water. Not really any to be seen, more just some ladies in beachwear. I did appreciate that there was something for everybody in this film because the men promptly end up in the beachwear. So a little bit of a feminist nod there that the men following their shipwreck with their torn trousers are given alternative items to wear. But Queen Pua makes it quite clear that because there's only women on the island, they have to wear sarongs too. So it was a Beckham moment. So we, <laughs> as an audience, you know, you can enjoy the visuals. Although having said that, the version that I was watching was on Prime. And for some reason, it's in black and white. But I understand the original print of this film was in glorious Technicolor, which I think would have added something, quite a lot really, to uh, what is otherwise quite a short, should we call it a contained piece. I'd like to talk about the opening scene. Darren, I bet you've got some thoughts on this. The setup is quite interesting. In fact, it's, it's not interesting. <laughs> it's, it's, quite, <laughs> it's quite basic, really, isn't it? But the, the naughty brother, the one who wants to steal the jewels later on in the film, um, is with his mate, yeah. his friend, his compadre, who is an interesting portrayal of ethnic. <laughs> yeah. You choose your ethnicity. Couldn't quite tell because of the lack of Technicolor, but do you, was there blackface involved? It's it's kind of, it, but you're right, even in colour, and I have to fess up, I've seen both versions of this. I watched it in ah. black and white, and I've watched it in colour as well, the things I do for this podcast. But... <laughs> But the guy who is his sidekick at the start, I think the guy's ethnicity is best described as uncertain or undefined. <laughs> he's he's not a white guy. Let's just leave it at that. But yeah, I mean, at the start, I was thinking, did they really have to put that guy in there? And it, it was a little like an extra from Gandhi had just wandered onto set, and he was paired with chiselled George topless america hunk and i turned to my partner and i said i feel like i can predict which of these gentlemen will survive into the next scene <laughs> the hand-to-hand -hand combat i found particularly interesting the uh <laughs> it wasn't the finest example of of stage combat i've ever seen peculiar editing and didn't it didn't seem to fit them with the rest of the film I couldn't really work out how it was connected. And when the guys are washed up on the beach, we have a bloke we've never seen before who wasn't in this initial setup scene with the questionable ethnicity chap and, and dark haired brother. We, we open to, you know, a handsome blonde man lying on a beach who's got a US Navy tattoo. And it felt very stilted. I didn't know where we were or why, where he'd come into play. Yeah, I what think, do you guys think? Did I, th you... I think that with 
with a lot of these movies, I think they're shot on the hoof. Certainly the common movies when they were doing back-to-back movies. This feels like it kind of had an idea, but not a full script. So it jumps about all over the place. And to be fair, within the opening nine minutes, you've got the heist, you've got a shipwreck, which you never see, and then you've got a rescue. So it goes along at a fair clip for the first 10 minutes, but it's all connected by voiceover. So it's like, well, we can't afford to show the shipwreck, so we'll do that in a voiceover. We can't afford to show too much of the heist, and it can't be a big enough heist, so we'll just have a couple of guys swimming around this boardwalk. It just does seem that they were almost thinking, right, what can we do next? Okay, right, let's have them do this. And you write about characters appearing out of nowhere. And for a 63-minute movie, and for the first nine minutes to have so much incident in it, regardless of the fact that the incident is mostly off-camera and described, the remaining 54 minutes, you think, well, what's going to happen? Is there anything actually happening? I think me and Haley had this kind of conversation on um, Messenger as we were watching it. And I was saying, like, during stretches of this movie, what's actually going on? Is anything actually happening at this point in the movie? I think Haley had the same feeling, more or less. Yeah, I was kind of losing interest in well, it, to be honest, as it was going on. You mean the sarongs weren't enough to keep you enthralled, Haley? Uh, sadly not. That's such a shame. And they worked so hard to make those. <laughs> well, I appreciate the effort by the costume department, but no, there's not enough in this movie to uh, keep me invested. And there wasn't enough sharks as well, so that was disappointing. Enough, not, not enough she-gods either. We, we still never got to find out who the she-gods were and no one involved in the production uh, knew who they were either because, as we've said, it was just a decision made by um, American International Pictures in post-production. Actually, you make a very good point. We haven't discussed the sharks yet. So the the opening <laughs> shot is of some nurse sharks, which are very nice, gentle creatures that poke along on the bottom of the sea eating crabs. This was some stock footage that they, they used. They only were able to shoot one actual shark, which looks like a, a small reef shark that they found in the lagoon during production. And they were, quote-unquote, able to control it now this poor shark i think we may have a cannibal holocaust situation on our hands here i couldn't find anything about whether the shark was treated well or not during the production but given budgetary constraints and the fact that this shark takes both a knife to the back of the head and a spear I don't think the SFX budget would have stretched to doing that in a synthetic way. What were your thoughts about the scenes with the little shark? When I started watching it, I thought, oh, well, at least there are some sharks in here. And then thought, actually, these might be the only sharks in here. By the end, I think I was left slightly uncomfortable by the fact that I thought, that's a little bit too realistic for it not mm. to be a real shark and from not to be actually properly poking it with a spear. So by the end of it, this kind of fun, kitschy 50s movies took on a slightly different meaning because I was quite uncomfortable by the end of it. I'd been fairly entertained. I mean, yes, it's not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination, but occasionally it's nice to see these sort of things from the 50s. 
And my favourite character was Queen Pua because she has only got one character beat, which is to be very, very, very shouty at everybody. Everybody's always doing something wrong and it's it's offending the shark god Tangaroa. And at some point she does try to sacrifice Mahia to it. And all of that is quite fun, even if it's shot at a snail's pace. And some of the time the plot just doesn't hang together. But by the end, I was thinking like, if that's a real shark, and it clearly is, and if that's what they're actually doing to it, I'm I'm not really with this movie anymore. Mm. And the, the same shot of the, the shark being stabbed was used twice, once early on where Mahaya is first introduced and then again in the confrontation with the brother. The fact that it's the same shot twice suggests there was only one opportunity to show that shark being stabbed further reinforces the likelihood that this was actual animal cruelty happening on screen. So between that and the questionable portrayal of Indigenous peoples, I came away, unfortunately, with a bit of a bad taste. And what, as you say, Darren, should have been a Technicolor romp on a palm-strewn island, I think doesn't really hold up to a, a modern examination, does it? No, I definitely agree with you there. I think... For me watching it, you know, in 2022, this I didn't gel with this movie at all. It was definitely not my cup of tea. And again, adding that whole element of animal cruelty is just highly disturbing. And considering this film is a U certificate as well, that mm. kind of makes that more interesting because why would they get away with showing that when you think, as you mentioned, Cannibal Holocaust, like how that movie was banned, has an 18 rating now. But it's the fact that that has, you know, had all this controversy surrounding it, yet this movie seems to have gone under the radar, and it's a movie that children can watch. Yeah, I suppose we should say we don't know this for certain. It's just as kind of critical viewers where we're, we're looking for certain tells and giveaways with films that are made kind of earlier in the 20th century when it comes to use of animals, especially on screen. So we couldn't say for certain, but... I think we're we're all fairly clear in our minds what we what we're seeing happen in that footage, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Which is a shame, really, because I'm a big fan of Roger Corman. I thought the Poe stuff that he did in the early '60s was great. And I guess if you're a low budget movie maker, there is a certain impetus to get things done, whatever. But even I mean, with modern sensibilities, yeah, it's easy for me to sit here and say you shouldn't cross that line. And now you definitely shouldn't cross that line. Back then, you probably shouldn't have crossed that line, but it did get crossed over and over again. And it was several years before they had people on set to make sure that animals were treated humanely during a film shoot. It spoils the kitsch value of it. And... All the stuff that's gone before, kind of, as you say, Kate, is soured by that ending because some of it previous to that is just tone deaf in every single way, but tone deaf in a really entertaining and amusing way because you've got the Chris and Mahia romance, which comes out of nowhere. They don't know each other. It's kind of star-crossed lovers, but there's no chemistry between them. And... Chris's ne'er-do-well brother says things like, oh, it's all the same, isn't it, Chris? you got to louse things up for some dame, which is a very 50s line. That was our favourite line in the whole film, absolutely. <laughs> but you're right, there's, there's 
no chemistry, but also the majority of the cast seemed to be made up of just locals that they'd found wandering about. This was filmed at the Coco Palms Resort, which was also where Blue Hawaii was filmed. Quite a famous resort on this island that has big kind of Hollywood connections. If you read the history, it's very interesting. But it meant that they had just sort of gone, right, you, you and you, put on a dress, come sit here, sway gently. Which of you can hula dance? Right, up you get. And our leading lady, quite clearly, is of a different ethnic background from the rest of the cast. And again, a bit like at the beginning where we can see which one's going to survive into the next scene and be in the remainder of the film. We can pick out the love interest straight off the bat. So there's nothing kind of challenging or intriguing for us as an audience. You just sit back and enjoy the kitsch. But unfortunately, the kitsch is not enough to counteract the negative elements of, of this film, I think, for, for a modern viewer. So because of the lack of sharks and the sharks that are there, the possible maltreatment of them, you know, this gets half a shark, barely a fin out of five from me. The leading lady is Finnish, by the way. So, so there's definitely there's definitely a slight mismatch between these kind of supposed Polynesian beauties and this very statuesque Finnish lady who is the prominent beauty within them, and it kind of shows on screen. I have to say. But Darren, she's Finnish. <laughs> I, I didn't even realise I'd made that joke. I'm just, I'm, I'm so, I'm so wrapped up in the discussion. Yeah, that's that's um, that's perfect for this movie. Then in that case, oh, in that case, I'm gonna have to reassess my uh, a complete opinion of this movie because obviously Roger Corman had thrown that in as a massive gag, and it's like, hey, look, yeah. everybody, she's finished. <laughs> Sorry, that's really that's got me. <laughs> It's it's a complete meta film that <laughs> works on far deeper levels than we can comprehend. <laughs> we're we're going to have to go back to the start and just re-record this now. You know, we've just we've had our minds blown by this. <laughs> so before we round off, um, I'll just give a couple of facts about the film and discuss how it was received critically. The film had an estimated budget of $50,000. As we've said, it was just shot like in quite a rushed way as well. It was just a, a secondary film uh, to, the, to a main feature that was shot at the same time. It was negatively received by critics. The monthly film bulletin called it a poor script, indifferently performed. So it's not one that has uh, gone down well in film history whatsoever. A film critic called Lisa Marie Bowman wrote that the film had a somewhat haphazard story. I think that is definitely true. To round off on Rotten Tomatoes, it has no tomato meter. It has a 4% audience score. And on IMDb, it has 2.9 out of 10. And I think I kind of agree with all of that. Yeah. And I did read one critic's review yesterday that said something along the lines of, this film has two things going for it. One, it's a 63-minute runtime, and the second, it's in colour. <laughs> so I was especially annoyed I'd watched the black and white version. <laughs> the colour version is available to watch on YouTube. I think somebody has kindly uploaded it, if uh, anyone's curious and wants to check out how it looks in colour compared to black and white. Oh, you're kidding. I paid £2.49 on Amazon Prime to watch a poor black and white <laughs> 
it's free in colour on YouTube. Oh, now you sell me. Well, I, I shelled out for the black and white one as well because I thought, is it going to be any different? I mean, are we going to get a slightly different version on Amazon Prime? Nope. Nope, it's the same. It's just in black and white. So you get all that kits. You get that bloody hula dancing sequence again, which seems to go on. I mean, it only goes on for three and a half minutes because I timed it. But it also it also seems to go on forever at the same time because it's like, oh, yeah, let's have a hula dance. And they get the main guy to participate. It kind of services the rest of the plot because he's kind of, you know, his lay breaks and it's bad luck. And, and Queen Poor goes off on another rant. Queen Poor is like me on an island because you know everything that she finds going on there there's something to rant about so it's like you know it's like you go back to your work and like shark god is angry and it's like but I've, I've done nothing i've done absolutely nothing what are you getting so wound up about it's like you get out of here it's like i may have broken something um slightly but i'll fix it. it's like no shark god is angry you die <laughs> Maybe she's the one saving grace of this movie. <laughs> and I mean, she does have the same sarong as you, Darren. So <laughs> that's true. Yeah, she's very like yeah. you. So, and you've never seen us both in the same place. So, <laughs> are you also Finnish? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I am aware we are talking about a different character here, but that joke is going to keep running and running for me. <laughs> Yeah, she, she yells at people for turning up. She yells at people for leaving. She tells them to leave, even though they have to wait for a boat. She yells at them for being there, for not being there. It's honestly, yeah, just, you talk about your one-note characters. Her, her character is Matron of Island. Um, actually, something we haven't touched on yet is the, the scripting choice for the Polynesian characters. There are only two speaking roles amongst the islanders. Are angry, ranty Darren in disguise, Queen, and our Finnish beauty, and the language is the typical, unfortunately, typical fifties scripted indigenous English speaker of of shark there, shark angry, yeah, and they speak about themselves in the third person. I don't understand that either. Yeah. So Mahaya, Mahaya go, Mahaya with Chris. Yeah. Like that's that, that, that seems to be mostly a dialogue as soon as Chris turns up. It's like, ah, oh, Mahaya go with Chris anywhere. But it's like, why would you go with Chris anywhere? You don't know him. He seems a bit of a lunk. He's got shipwrecked. He seems pretty fucking useless to me. So why would you go with Chris anywhere? It's <laughs> a very valid point, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. The feminist text goes out the window at that point. And on that bombshell... I think that's the end of our discussion about She-Gods of Shark Reef. All that remains for us to say is to thank Kate for joining us to discuss this 1958 classic. Thank you. And just to check, you do reimburse for expenses, yeah? Um, this is a non-profit podcast, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I hope you'll join us again for another episode. Love to. See you soon, guys. <laughs> I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 68 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to check out our previous episodes and keep up to date with upcoming episodes, we are on all the social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. So come and check us out there if you'd like. 
thanks ever so much once more to Kate for being our guest this week. But that's not quite the last you'll see or hear of Kate, because she's back in next week's episode, episode 69. What shark movie are we going to be discussing in the next episode? So we're returning back to 2012 uh, for this next shark escapade, and it's a film titled Dark Tide starring Halle Berry. Yeah, I'm going to have to try to control myself as with any movie that has Halle Berry in it. So I'll try and focus on the movie and the sharks rather than Halle Berry, but let's see how far I get with that one. It's going to be one of those, so uh, bear with us, people. Until then, stay safe, everybody. We'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Ellis Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podchaser, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbeat.